0: If you follow the social media closely, now one video has been circulating throughout the entire world. It looks like this time that Ukrainian government finally stepped up and sent a drone to attack the Kremlin. And despite this allegation that Ukrainian government denies such call and believe this time the information has been completely misled by the public. Well, is it really? Well, for so long, we've been following the war in Ukraine since a couple years ago. But meanwhile, the question we still need to ask, is Vladimir Putin ready to give up the war? And also, what is his angle? I believe last time we had the conversation with our distinguished speaker, we believe that Vladimir Putin is headed for failure, not only politically, but also ideologically. But meanwhile, in this episode, we need to bring another country into our conversation. And how about China? If you remember closely, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping actually paid a short visit to the Moscow and regarding this message. And the whole world believed that China was the only solution to end the war. And meanwhile, the current president of Ukraine, Zelensky, also uh, communicated with Chinese leader. What now? What can we expect regarding the future of the two countries, Russia and Ukraine? Well, so that's why in this episode, we're going to answer all the questions. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to invite our distinguished speaker, Dr. Alexander Motol. Again, Dr. Motol is a political scientist, and he teaches classes such as The Government and the Politics of Russia and the Soviet Union, Nationalism, Revolution and War, Research method politics, history, and art. Well, Dr. Alexander Molto, and welcome back to The Missing Piece.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Will. Uh,
0: Thanks again to your audience for listening and watching. Well, Dr. Molto, again, as we mentioned before, back in March of this year, Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Chinese President Xi Jinping pledged to deepen this economic cooperation as part of their No Limits Partnership. Dr. Moto, help us to understand at this moment, how should we understand, quote, no limits relationship? Is this just one pure economic promise or this political affirmation from China to Russia?
1: I think one needs to look at the actual relationship first and then we'll consider the uh, discourse, the verbiage that is used in order to describe it. And the reality is very simple. When one considers uh measures of hard power. Mm. China exceeds Russia in every single respect, mm. by far. Not just a little bit, but by far. Uh, its military is obviously better than Russia's. I mean, Russia was supposed to have the second best military in the world. Now we know from the war that that is not the case, and mm. that will not be the case for many years to come. China's economy is roughly the same size as america's whereas russia's economy is approximately the size of the state of texas so on that score as well one focuses on population size of course the chinese far exceed the russians in terms of population when it comes to soft power the ability of a a country to present its culture, its language, its science, its Mm. technology, its people in a positive light to the rest of the world. Once again, China far exceeds uh, Russia in that regard as well. Um, So by any measure, China compared to Russia is a superpower, Mm. and Russia compared to China is frankly a very minor power. Uh, It looks different, of course, because Russia is huge. Mm. It looks different because, of course, Russia also has nuclear weapons, so that's not insignificant. And it also has a seat on the United Nations Security Council. Mm. That said, when one looks at the concrete measures of power, uh, whether soft or hard, Russia is clearly clearly the inferior to china Mm. which means that in essence china represents i mean to use the analogy from feudal times china is the lord the Mm. master Mm. and frankly russia is the vassal it is clearly the inferior power. it is China is the cli- is the patron and Russia is the client mm. to use again terminology from historical times. And then when one looks specifically at the current relationship, I mean even more focused than what I've been talking about in terms of general measures mm. of power, what does China have to offer Russia? Well, Russia sells its energy, I mean, especially gas and oil, to China. And within the last year, year and a half, China has been able to request, or demand rather, Mm -hmm. perhaps even compel, a price that is far lower than what Russia used to be getting from the European Union. And I think that clearly shows the nature of the relationship. Yes, Russia is forced to seek assistance, support, cover from China because it has no alternative, Mm. having alienated the United States and Europe. So it has to be closer to China, but China is clearly, clearly using this dependency to promote its own interests. Mm. Uh, If China were simply involved in this as a kind of no-limits partner that wants to be Russia's best friend, it would be paying far higher a price for energy resources coming from Russia. But of course, China being smart, the Chinese being, again, concerned with their own interests above all, uh, are Uh, utilizing this relationship and the weakness of Russia Mm. to pay for energy resources at a far smaller price than would have been the case before.
0: Mm.
1: And of course, as you know, India is doing exactly the same thing. That's right. At the same time, China and India are exporting products to Russia – products that might not have been imported by Russia in the past but that are now uh, clearly beneficial to the Russians but especially beneficial to the rush uh, to the Chinese and to the Indians and then when you look at what the quid pro quo is well the Russians were obviously expecting significant political and diplomatic support mm. from China which they really haven't gotten uh for partners that know no bounds to their love and friendship, Um, Beijing has been very reluctant to express more than a kind of qualified neutral support of Russia. Uh, talks and generalities. Just recently, uh, there was a resolution adopted in the United Nations which spoke of Russia as an aggressor state, mm. and the Chinese supported this resolution. Um, they haven't provided Russia with any significant military assistance. So, in some ways, in many ways, the relationship is one-sided, it's, again, indicative of the fact that Russia has become a vassal, mm. uh, dependent, I won't say colony because that's much too strong, right. but clearly it's become very dependent on China, and China is able to determine the rules of the game. And the Russians can't object
0: mm. because
1: they have no place else to go.
0: Dr. Motol, it's interesting that how you describe the relationship, again, there's no denying that China wants to be the master of the game, and Russia, again, is forced at this moment to follow the rules, or we say to obey the rules. Now, based on the report, these days, since the um, meetup between Vladimir Putin and also the Chinese leader, Again, reports came out lately. It says that China appears to be wary of increasing trade with Russia. And again, as you mentioned before, Dr. Motol, since Moscow does not have much to offer to Beijing, China does not want to buy Russia oil and gas at a large discount, but instead it wants a diverse array of energy provider. Now, help us to understand what does that mean when we understand the descending power of Russia and also how does that impact uh, Russia's political current dilemma or even for the future? What do you make of that?
1: Well, you you asked two questions. So let me address the first one, Mm. which is the general one about the impact of Russia's decline on the world. Right. And then we'll talk about the impact of Russia's decline on Russia. Sure. Um, To be my, my own view of this is that Russia's decline from a great power to a middle power, perhaps even to a small power, mm. is actually going to be very positive for the world. And I say this for a very simple reason. Uh, we know from history that bipolarity where you have two great powers facing mm. each other. In mm-hmm. the past, during the Cold War, it was the United States and the Soviet Union. Today, it's the United States and China. We know from history that these kinds of relationships, although they're scary because people are always afraid that something will happen, right? in reality, they tend to be very stable. Mm. And... Just as in the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union never fought a war. This is very important, uh, despite the fact that they had thousands of nuclear weapons, despite the fact that they had huge armies, and that disagreed on just about everything.
0: Mm.
1: But they never fought a war. Now they have proxy wars. Where proxy wars happen all the time, but there was never a war involving the great powers. So if the relationship, the international relationship of the world were to be bipolar with the United States and China, that I think, based on historical experience and based on uh, political science theory, would lead one to the conclusion that that would actually be a very stable relationship, Mm. that war between these two countries would be unlikely to take place.
0: Right.
1: Yes, they would be disagreeing about many things. But they already disagree about many things. Mm. And at the same time, more importantly, they also agree on many things. This is very important. Um, and in a bipolar relationship, the Chinese would know that the Americans are there to stay. Mm. And the Americans would know that the Chinese are there to stay. So there's a, again, it would be a balance of power that would actually produce a stable, a more Mm. stable, not necessarily a fully stable, but a more stable world. If Russia remains a power to be dealt with, that means that would destabilize this bipolarity. It would force either the United States to join up with China against Russia, Mm. or possibly Russia and China against the United States. Um, Arguably, that's what's happening today. And that enables a small irresponsible or a smaller irresponsible power like Russia to be a loose cannon. Mm. Um, The war has clearly shown that Russia can't be trusted with international peace and security. That's right. China can China can because the Chinese understand that a stable world is good for the world, but mm. it's also good for them. Russia seems to think that instability is good for the world and good for them. Mm. So Russia is not a reliable partner for anybody. And this war has definitely shown that because of this alliance between China and Russia, China is being dragged into a conflict that that doesn't serve its interests at all, Mm. right? It would be far better for China if Russia were to be demoted to a weaker state. Again, how weak, I don't know. Uh, And then China and the United States could simply sit down and figure out what needs to be done. But with a third partner, there is always going to be a question mark. Will he do something stupid? Will he invade Kazakhstan? Will he use nuclear weapons? Will he, and so on and so forth. And these are precisely the questions people are asking about Vladimir Putin, but also about his entourage. So, in general terms then, I think Russia's demotion for the world is a good thing. Is a good thing for the world and it's a good thing for china
0: mm-hmm. and it's
1: a good thing for uh, the united states but it's also a good thing for russia mm-hmm. and obviously for ukraine but especially for russia russia needs to learn or the russians need to learn that they are far better off becoming a normal state That simply wants to engage in economic relations, um, cultural exchanges. Mm. And again, I think China is a good model, right? China actually tries to be stabilizing. Right. The Russians need to learn that they do not need an empire. Mm. They do not need to conquer Georgia or Ukraine or Moldova. They don't need to conquer northern Kazakhstan or Estonia. Uh, This adds nothing to their ability to become stronger richer more prosperous more stable Mm. and more decent more normal the word that russians use is normal right to become a normal country i think most russians or many russians would want to be a normal country Mm. where they could just have their families and jobs and go to the theater go to the movies travel see the world But that's impossible with a man like Putin in charge. That's right. Uh, And it's impossible as long as Russia will continue to pursue imperial expansion. So if it loses the war, if it's demoted in terms of its geopolitical ambitions, that would be excellent for the Russians. Mm. And it would be excellent for Russia's neighbors. Ukraine could breathe the sigh of relief. Belarus could breathe the sigh of relief. So would the Poles, the Kazakhs, the Kyrgyz, the Tajiks, and the Mongolians. Mongolians would also benefit from this. That's they right. could also, they wouldn't have to play China and Russia. Uh, they could just simply live in a more or less normal Asia. Hmm. Uh, so, in that sense, Russia's defeat would be one of the best things in the world for the world as well as for Russia and its neighbors. Mm.
0: Dr. Motol. again, you mentioned several significant points, because one thing that I agree with you, or I mean many things, but one thing that actually stood out is when we look at this instability in Russia compared with this economic and social stability in China, again, given a fact that we believe that when Vladimir Putin look at the country of China, or when they look at the leadership of the Chinese leader, I believe, at the end of the day, there are going to be some questions that he's going to ask, or there are going to be some reflection that he had to do regarding his military or political ambition. But meanwhile, Dr. Molto, I want to ask the question, very simple, how much do you think that Russia is actually mimicking The political shift or even this political ambition from the Chinese leader. Because again, given the fact that today, China is increasing politically speaking, militarily speaking, socially speaking. And that could pose major threat not to the West, but also to some countries around the world. But meanwhile, I believe if Vladimir Putin is an ambitious person, he will love to get there as well. So how much do you think of Vladimir Putin can actually mimic the behavior or mimic the hunger of what the Chinese leader is doing today? What do you think, Professor?
1: I think Putin clearly
0: aspires
1: to be... The leader of a very great country. Mm. He's made no secrets of this. I mean, he this was he said this in 1998 and 1999 when he became president, mm. first prime minister and then president. So there's no question that this is his aspiration. Mm. Um, I think the goal, the model, or at least the the point of comparison, the primary point of comparison for many Russians then was the United States. They wanted to be as great as the West because that was always historically, at least during the Cold War, right? It was always the Soviet-American comparison. Mm. I think in recent years, uh, clearly he has his eye on China and I'm sure he admires what the Chinese have done and I'm sure he would aspire to be able to replicate something like that in Russia as well. Mm. But however, and this is the problem, He's doomed to failure. Mm. Um, One of the reasons, not the only reasons, but one of the key reasons for the ability of the United States and China to be great powers is the fact that they have very strong, very competitive, very innovative economies. Mm. It's almost that simple. Uh, If you have a strong economy, you have the resources to build infrastructure, to build a military, um, to develop the country, to modernize it. In other words, to raise its level in all sorts of dimensions, not just in terms of military, but across the board. Mm. Uh, Chinese infrastructure is infinitely superior to Russia's. It's even better than America's probably. Uh, But you can't just have a strong military with an economy the size of the Benelux countries. Uh, You can't aspire to be a great power if you do not have a strong economy. It's really that simple. Uh, There are other factors, but I think the most important one is the strong economy. Um, And given Russia's problems, given the kind of uh, regime that Putin has constructed, uh, which is essentially a corrupt, rent-seeking regime, mm. uh, which isn't interested in modernization, which is essentially interested – I mean, the elites are essentially just interested in acquiring as much wealth as possible. And we know, of course, corruption exists everywhere uh, in China, in the United States, everywhere. But in Russia, it's especially huge. Um, given that kind of regime – Given his inability and the the inability of his entourage to think creatively about globalization, about uh, what Russia's economic priorities should be, given the fact that the Russian economy is so overwhelmingly dependent Mm. on energy resources, uh, more than half of its GDP derives from oil and gas, uh, that means that the economy is deformed. Mm. Uh, it's corrupt. It's mismanaged. I just don't see this regime, the Putin regime being able to modernize and develop the economy. And it would have to do that, first of all, at all. Mm. And secondly, we'd have to do that quickly. Mm. Uh, I can't, I can't, I just don't see 15% growth rates in Russia under Putin. It's just impossible. I mean, mm. China was able to do this. Putin simply cannot, mm. which means that basically Putin, whatever Putin's aspirations are to become a truly great power, uh, will be, will simply be impossible. And then, of course, until now, until the war with Ukraine, Russia could at least say, well, maybe the economy is small, but the military, the military is a powerhouse. That's right. Um, but of course, now we see from the war that that's absolutely not true. Uh, this is a, an ineffective, incompetent, undersupplied, undertrained, undermanned military. I mean, the only thing that the Russians have is large numbers of soldiers, hmm. uh, but they don't seem to be able to fight well. Consider what happens, what's just still happening in the Ukrainian city of Mahmoud in the east. The Russians have been trying to capture it for something like eight months. Mm. Eight months. The second largest army and the second most powerful army in the world should have been able to capture it in a few weeks, or perhaps possibly even in a few days. And they can't capture this relatively small city. And I think that's indicative of what is going on within Russia. They are Increasingly, not, I'm not sure Putin, but people within the Russian elite are seeing that economically Russia is facing disaster, mm. militarily it's facing disaster, socially uh, you have a disgruntled, demoralized and increasingly alienated population, diplomatically Russia is facing disaster, it's isolated in the world, Hmm. and who's responsible for this? Who is responsible? Well, again, the key responsibility, the key fault lies with Mr. Putin. That's right. He started the war. He made all of this happen. It was his idea. It was his uh, project. Now, again, the, the elites supported it. They didn't oppose it strongly enough, but it was primarily his responsibility. Hmm. Um, And the finger-pointing has already begun. There are significant indications that elites within the army, Mm. within the secret police, within the oligarchs, are very deeply disappointed and angry at Putin. As you know, in the last few weeks, two uh, conversations between oligarchs have been published have been, uh, have been uh, made public, rather. Uh, those were, both of them were private conversations that were secretly tape-recorded, mm. presumably by the secret police. They were then publicized on the internet. And in both these conversations, the people conversing, first of all, who are oligarchs, so mm. they're important. But secondly, they were so dismissive, so critical, of Putin and his regime uh, that it almost sounded as if this were some kind of American propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these were real conversations mm-hmm. and they're indicative of the mood. People are angry. The elites mm-hmm. are angry. They know that this is a losing proposition and that the longer Russia stays in the war, the weaker it will become. So much so that it's possible even, again, even Russian uh, loyalists are saying this, it's even possible for the regime to collapse. And some of them are even talking about the possibilities that the Russian Federation might collapse. Mm. Now, of course, they don't believe it'll happen. Right? But they're talking about it. And the mere fact that they're talking about it means that other
0: people are talking about it. Mm. Dr. Motol, I want to move on to another country when we talk about globalization, which is the country of Iran. Now, recently, one of Russian, pre- uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's special envoy visiting Iran. Now, again, Professor, from your perspective, how should we understand the relationship between Russian and Iran at this moment? And keep in mind, again, you know this as well. Iran is also a close economic partner with China as well. So how should we understand this uh, uh, relationship between Russia and Iran at this moment?
1: Again, given its diplomatic isolation, given its economic the economic sanctions, mm. um, and given the fact that it's Russia is running out of certain kinds of ammunitions and weapons, That's right. Uh, You know, Putin is obviously looking for all possible alternative alliances, Mm. alternative to those that he might have had with the Europeans or with the Americans. So, of course, China is the number one partner, or at least potential partner. And then, of course, Iran comes to mind. Um, And as you know, uh, the key development in Iranian relations with Russia is that the Iranians are supplying Russia with the Shahed drones, Mm. which have been activated and used by the Russians in their attacks on Ukrainian cities. So that's been the primary benefit of this. Um, Of course, the problem with drawing closer to Russia, excuse me, to for Russia drawing closer to Iran, is that it potentially can alienate the Israelis, Mm. who, as you know, have hostile relations with the Iranians. Uh, Thus far, the Israelis have been largely neutral, although my suspicion is they have been providing Ukraine with some clandestine military support. Mm. But they've been largely neutral, or at least they claim to be largely neutral. Uh, But that could change, of Mm. course. That could easily change depending on the degree of support that Iran gives to Russia and that Russia gives to Iran. Uh, final point, I think, is that, you know, Iran is not necessarily a stable regime. Hmm. Uh, we saw that in the uprising and the demonstrations that lasted for several months uh, and that were prompted, as you know, by that one lady Um the fact that these regimes, the fact that these uh, uprisings occur periodically in Iran, I mean, mm-hmm. almost every year, mm-hmm. uh, and yes, it's true, they are crushed, uh, but they still take place, mm-hmm. and it's clearly the case that there is a great deal of disaffection within Iranian society, and um, And sooner or later, again, we know from the history of the world, we know from the history of the Middle East, we know from the history of Asia, sooner or later, regimes that are primarily supported by coercion and not by other kinds of monetary or normative means, coercive regimes tend to collapse. Mm. Sooner or later, they tend to collapse. Now, Thus far, the Iranian regime has been stable since, well, since the revolution. So it's easy to say that it might be becoming unstable, and that might be in one year, it might be in 20 years. Mm. We don't know. Uh, But certainly the repetitive nature of these uprisings suggests that something is not quite right with Iran. Mm. Uh, Which means, ultimately, that Putin... If he survives that long, uh, maybe putting, maybe maybe betting on a horse that is not going to win. Mm. Uh, again, we don't know, but these are certainly concerns. I'm sure there are concerns that affect the Russian leadership, and they certainly should have. You know, they should certainly should influence our understanding of Russia's rapprochement with Iran. Mm.
0: Dr. Motel, I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, again, besides Iran, based on the research that today, when we look at Russia's biggest customers, there are still a lot more countries out there. For example, Algeria, um, uh, Libya, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan. Again, the list kind of went on and on and on. But when we look at some of the trading status with Russia, and meanwhile, some of the countries are also on the radar for the U.S. government as well. Now, Dr. Moto, the question is very simple. By continuing to build this relationship with Russia, how much do you think those countries are actually playing a very dangerous economic and political game today? And again, more countries will like to strengthening the relationship with the U.S., but meanwhile, they're continuing being the cuspers and they're footing the bills for Russia. How much do you think those countries can actually afford continue to uh, maintain this relationship with Russia and meanwhile to see the reaction from the U.S.? Dr. Moto, what do you say to that?
1: Well, it's a as you say. I think you used a very good adjective. It's a dangerous game, mm. uh, or at least let me put it this way: it's a potentially dangerous game, mm. one that could easily backfire. Um, China is in a different category because it can, you know, it's so strong that it can do whatever it likes, regardless of what the Americans or the Russians think. That's right. Um, but a smaller country or a small country that is dependent on america or china or other greater powers uh, has to consider whether building bridges with say russia that is at war with the west mm. as it says uh, and with the russia that more importantly is likely to lose the war mm. uh, and whose economy is be- is potentially on the verge of collapse, Um, the question that smaller countries should be asking is, is this a partner, is this a reliable partner for the foreseeable future? Mm. Now, the argument for is, well, even if Putin leaves and the regime collapses, by. Uh, building economic relations today that might enable these countries to maintain and broaden their economic relations with a post-Putin Russia. That's possible. The danger lies in the possibility that Putin may remain in power, or at least people like Putin will remain in power for a number of years, in which case, closer relations with Russia, as mm. you said, could very easily lead to more difficult relations with the United States. Um, so either way, uh, again, I see the logic in pursuing these kinds of relations.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, I can see why you know interest might be served. But at the same time, it's a very tricky game. Because you want to, if you're a small country, you want to benefit from these relations with Russia, while at the same time not alienating the Americans and their allies. And that's a very, very tight rope. Mm. It's not easy to walk this tight rope. Uh, one has to be very careful both vis-a-vis the Russians and vis-a-vis the Americans. And... Um, Again, some countries are certainly able to do that. Others are perhaps going to have some difficulties. But I think your assessment, namely that this is a potentially dangerous game, is mm. absolutely on the mark.
0: Mm. Dr. Motel, I want to wrap up our conversation again by saying that you and I would agree 100% that Russia is headed for its failure. Again, politically speaking, economically speaking, if but Vladimir Putin refuses to give up the war, but meanwhile, as we're speaking right now, the current president of Ukraine, Zelensky, also is continuing his trip and his visit to more countries. If I'm not mistaken, he's actually visiting Finland this week or Finland lately. Now, again, Dr. Motol, are we going to see Russia is going to fold the cart very soon? As we know that Ukrainian president is generating much louder noises. And the Ukrainian president is being celebrated and being welcomed by more international leaders. So is this alarming message or this is the final note for Vladimir Putin to say, listen, you're done. It's time to fold the cards, put the cards on the table, and you need to either you need to give up or you need to understand what the reality is? What do you think? Question. Uh, very, very good
1: question. I think these are the kinds of questions and the kinds of scenarios that Russian elites are considering.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: political, military, security service, economic elites. As I, as I suggested in my one of my previous answers, they are very upset. They're angry. They're humiliated. They're fearful. And they know who's to blame. It's Putin. Mm. Uh, So increasingly, there is a growing consensus amongst Russia's elites that Putin needs to go. Now, whether he needs to be driven out of power or given some kind of symbolic position, there is even talk of that. That's another question. But something needs to be done to make sure that Putin is removed from power. Mm. Of course, the problem there is, how do you do it? Right. Um, Who's supposed to do it? There is a consensus amongst Russian analysts that if that were to happen, it would have to be not the economic oligarchs, not the military, but the only agency that has direct access to Putin, namely the security service, the FSB. And we do know that the FSB or at least elements within the FSB are unhappy with Putin. So it's conceivable that we. I mean, it's conceivable that something like a coup d'état or a putsch could actually happen, um, but we'll see. Mm. You know, again, it, one one needs to look at the micro elements, and there they get very, very complicated. As you know, Putin spends most of his time in underground bunkers, so he's he's not exactly um, open to the public or even visible so much in private. So, in any case, I mean, to answer the first part of your question, I do think this is exactly what many elites in Russia are thinking today. Mm. Is Putin thinking the same? Uh, He must be aware, again, he can't be quite that ignorant. Mm. So, he must be aware that there are problems in the country. He must be aware that the war isn't going quite the way he thought it would. Mm. The problem for Putin is that he has identified himself with the war to a hundred percent. He's identified himself with Russia, right? To a hundred
0: percent.
1: Some of his people have even said without Putin, there is no Russia. Mm. In other words, Putin is Russia and Putin is the war. So for him to leave sort to, to to extricate himself from the war would essentially be to commit political suicide. Mm. And I think he knows that. Uh, and he understand he seems to understand that he needs to keep on fighting because continued fighting is the only guarantee of his continued political life
0: mm.
1: If the war ends, Well, first of all, if Russia loses, then of course his career is over. Right. But even if the war simply ends in some kind of fashion, again, I don't, I don't, I can't quite even imagine how, but let's assume that there's some kind of agreement. Um, That would mean that all of this effort that was put into the war. The hundreds and thousands of lives that were lost, the billions of dollars that were wasted, the thousands of Ukrainians that were killed, the economic collapse, all of this would suddenly come to the surface and everybody, including the people, would point fingers at the one man who is responsible, Mm, namely Putin. That's right. So Putin is forced to fight in a way. He has no alternative. Uh, the alternative is in the other elites and possibly within the population. Mm. Uh, so one hopes that they will organize themselves in some manner and be able to either dispose of Putin or shunt him off to the side. Mm. Notice in this analysis, the United States, China and others don't really play much of a role, if any. Uh, The ball, everything ultimately depends on the Russian elites. That's right. Uh, Obviously, China and the United States can send signals of various kinds, but it all depends on the Russians and specifically on the Russian elites. Mm. Um, And we'll see how they decide.
0: That's right, Dr. Motel. Again, right now, on one hand, we hope that Putin is going to wake up very soon and realize that this war continues and it's one of the biggest mistakes of his life. But on the other hand, we hope that more nations are continue support and going to uh, root for uh, Ukraine. And again, this is not a war that we'd like to see continues in the year of 2023. But meanwhile, we hope that we all are learning something from watching or observing and following the war. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Alexander Molto. Again, Dr. Alexander Molto is a political scientist, and also he teaches the government and the politics of Russia and the Soviet Union, and also courses on nationalism, revolution, and war. I strongly encourage everyone go online. Connect with Dr. Motol and look for his latest publications. And again, Dr. Motol, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. We appreciate your insights and analysis. We love to have you back on the show. And hopefully next time when we have the conversation, it's not about the ongoing war. And we love to see the result of the war and the failure of Vladimir Putin. So thank you so much for doing this.
1: Will, thank you for the invitation. i'm it's always a privilege. It's always an honor, and it's always very, very stimulating and exciting to share to have this conversation with you. So any anytime in the future, by all means,